Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers is a Christian apologetics ministry led by Dr. Pat Zucran. Pat provides compelling messages from top apologetic scholars defending the Christian worldview and provides valuable resources for every person seeking answers to life's questions, as well as addressing key issues of our time, and also serves to equip Christians who want to effectively engage their world for Christ. Today, our host, Pat Zucran, will be sharing a question of the week. Today's question revolves around the problem of evil and suffering. The problem of evil and suffering poses a challenge not only for Christianity, but all religions and philosophies. Among all the worldviews, Pat believes Christianity offers the most reasonable answers to the problem of evil and suffering today. Now, with today's message, is our host, Pat Zucran. The major ones out there, the major worldviews, you know, atheism and pantheism, how does atheism address the problem of evil and suffering? Well, atheism has a big problem here because of this. How do you define evil? I mean, if something is objectively evil, then there is an absolute standard of good by which you're measuring it by. There's an absolute standard of good from which you have deviated and gone astray. Where does that absolute standard of good come from? So that poses quite the challenge for atheism. That's one of the problems that C.S. Lewis faced as an atheist. You know, he said in his book, The Problem of Pain, one of his greatest complaints against Christianity was that the world, the universe, seems so cruel and unjust. But then he said, where did I get this idea of just and unjust? You cannot call a line crooked unless you have a straight line to measure it by. When I was calling the universe unjust, what was I measuring it by? An absolute moral law requires an absolute moral lawgiver, right? So atheism has a problem with defining what is evil because if something is objectively evil, then there is a universal standard of good. And where did that universal standard of right and wrong come from? Now, I remember I was talking not too long ago with an atheist over lunch, a, a very intelligent, gifted lawyer, and we were talking about the existence of God and immediately he asked, if God is so good and loving, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? And I said, define evil and suffering for me. And he paused for a moment. Nobody had ever asked him that question before. And he thought, and he thought, and he finally said, well, evil is being restricted from doing what you really want to do. And I said, well, your child wants to stay up all night and watch cartoons, but you force her to go to bed. Is that evil? And he paused and he said, well, you know, and then he finally looked at me and said, well, how do you define evil? right so it poses a challenge there what about pantheism well pantheism also has some great challenges when addressing this problem of evil and suffering as well pantheism acknowledges the divine the cosmic energy of the universe or a god or a series of gods but denies this world as an illusion so if you take that particular view then you're gonna have to say that evil is some kind of an illusion right in this illusionary world and what person in their right mind would deny the reality of evil here or if you hold to a pantheism that's of the new age type then all is one God and the universe are one everything in the universe is a part of God well then you run into some problems there as well because then good and evil then are resident in God himself or itself or however you define God good and evil are resident in the character of God 
And so uh, you run into some problems there with the pantheist worldview. I think of all the world religions that are out there and all the ideologies, I think Christianity, I think the Bible and the Christian worldview provides the best answer and the only message of hope that is out there in the midst of evil and suffering. Christianity provides the best answer because it acknowledges the reality of God and the reality of evil in this world. And so I believe in Christianity here, you have the best answer to the problem of evil and suffering. Now, there's many facets to answering this problem of God, evil, and suffering. So we'll probably just take on one facet or one aspect of the question this week, and then we'll address other facets of the question because it's a pretty big question here. So we'll address other facets in the days to come. What is the origin of evil? I mean, how did evil come about? If God is perfect, if everything God created is perfect, then how, how in the world did we get evil? Well, in the beginning, the Bible says, God created the heavens and the earth. And God created all things in creation. And when he created each one, the Bible says, it was good. God saw that it was good. So everything that God created was good. Now the pinnacle, the crowning moment of his creation was the creation of man and woman, right? They were created in his image. And one of the good things God created in human beings were perfect beings who could do then the greatest act of good there is possible. And what is that? Well, the greatest moral act that can be done is to love. Right? So beings created in the image of God have the capability to love. In fact, that's the very essence of God's character. First John 4, God is love. That's the very essence of his character. And so one of the great things that God created was beings in his image who could do the greatest good and the greatest act of good is the ability to love. Now, love requires free will. It must be a love relationship must be entered into freely. You cannot force someone to love you, all right? That's, you know, a divine rape, all right? You can't force someone to love you. If you make someone and you program them so all they can do is wake up in the morning and say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Well, that's not a love relationship there. What you've got there is a robot. Okay? Love requires free will and the person, the individuals must freely choose to enter into that relationship. However, in creating beings with free will, there is the potential for evil, all right? Free will and freedom is not evil. Who fights to go into bondage? All civilizations have fought for freedom. Freedom is a good thing, all right? That's something that we all desire. But in free will, there is the potential for evil because I can choose to do something other than what is good. In giving creatures the ability to choose, they can choose to reject me. And so God creating creatures with a free will, that wasn't anything evil. That was good. But in freedom, there is the potential for evil. So Adam and Eve there exercised their freedom to disobey God in the Garden of Eden there. And that is the cause of evil. And that is how evil entered into our world. And so 
God being a perfect God, a God who is in control, created all good things, and one of the good things he created indeed was freedom, because that is required to enter into a love relationship. And a perfect being has got to be able to commit the perfect, the greatest act of good, and that is to love. So God giving these creatures freedom was not evil, but in that there is the potential uh, for evil to do otherwise. You know, for example, uh, if I give one of my students here the keys to my car and a hundred bucks and I say, hey, you're free to do whatever you want, but I would like you to go to Pizza Hut there and buy the class pizza and bring it back. Right now, is my act there towards my student evil? No. All right. Now, what my student does with the freedom I gave him can be good or evil. He can obey my desire and go there to Pizza Hut and get us pizzas and bring them back here to class. Or he can disobey and take my car drag racing on the freeway out there and frivolously spend the hundred dollars that I gave him. Now what I did in giving him the car, you know, the keys to my car and that freedom was not evil. But in that there is the potential for evil because he could choose to obey and do what I desired or he could choose otherwise. And that is the origin of evil. And so God has to allow free creatures to exercise their free will. He can't just program us to love him and to obey him. Then you don't have free creatures in a love relationship there. However, God understanding that there is the possibility for us to disobey and do otherwise chose right to nevertheless create free creatures who could love and in the end he knew that indeed we would disobey and it would cost him everything to rescue us from sin and death and he chose to do so but that's the explanation for the origin of evil and God allows us continually to exercise our free will here and many times we choose to disobey and he allows us to suffer the consequences, all right? But ultimately, ultimately, God uses all things to bring about his purpose and will eventually use even evil, all right, in our disobedience. Ultimately, in his sovereignty, it somehow works out to bring about his purpose. It does not defeat him or his purpose for mankind and the redemption of the world, all right? All right, so that's a brief answer to the origin of evil. We'll get to more aspects in the days to come. But right now, let's take a look at some questions here and answer some of your questions. As I stated, I believe the Christian worldview provides the best answer for God and the problem of evil. I think it's the most complete answer and the only one that gives a good reasonable answer and any and offers any kind of meaningful message of hope. First question here is, why did God then put the tree in the Garden of Eden? Doesn't that provide temptation and the origin of evil? As I was stating earlier, love requires a choice. All right, one must freely choose to enter into that relationship. Must, one must freely choose to love the other right now. So Adam and Eve needed a choice. Okay? They needed the ability to be able to choose. Otherwise, you'll never know whether they truly love God or not if the choice is not there. When God 
put the tree in the garden of Eden. He told them clearly, do not eat of the tree, for on that day you will surely die. So the command was clear. But here in providing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil provides Adam and Eve that choice. All right? They have that choice now. They can choose to love, return God's love and, and love him and obey him, or they can choose to disobey. But in that, now they have the freedom to choose. And in their freedom, they chose to disobey. But love requires a choice, and that choice needs to be there. And someone needs to freely be able to make that choice and enter into that relationship. Without that choice, then you don't know if the other party loves you or not. The illustration that comes to my mind is the movie Beauty and the Beast. You know, the Walt Disney version, the recent cartoon one is the one I'm going by. And in that one, Belle is trapped in the castle with the beast. All right. Now the beast loves Belle dearly, but he doesn't know if she loves him. And he surrounds her with you know, all the majesty and the glory of the castle. She's in a wonderful place. She has all that, you know, she wants materially, you know, the security. She's treated very well by the servants and by the, the king, who's actually the beast. But she's trapped there. She's a prisoner there, all right? She chose to be there to sacrifice and be there as a prisoner so that her father, who had wandered in there, could go free. Now, uh, during this whole time, the beast is treating her really well and showering her, you know, with tenderness and kindness and, and with love. But he doesn't know if she truly loves him or not. Why? Because she's a prisoner. She doesn't have a choice. Now, near the end of the movie, then Belle sees that her father is dying and needs her care back in the town. And she requests to leave the castle and go to the town. Now, the true act of love on the part of the beast would be to let her go, not knowing if she would ever return or not, all right? Or he could keep her there as a prisoner in his castle. But he'll never know if she truly loves him or not. So in the end, the true act of love upon the part of the beast was what? To let her go, to give her a choice, and he allows her to leave the castle. Now, if she returns then he knows that she truly loves him. If she doesn't, well, then he knows. But there's no other way to know unless Belle has a choice. Right? And that's one of the reasons God provides Adam and Eve a choice there in the garden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in being able to make that choice, that's where you can demonstrate but also commit the act of love. Right, by making that choice that was provided for them. All right, whew, tough question here. And we've got another one. They don't get any easier here. Next question says, Pat, you said that Christianity provides the best acknowledgement to the reality of God and the reality of evil. Why is Christianity better than, say, Islam or Mormonism in explaining God and suffering? Well, good question there. And as I stated, I said, I believe the Christian worldview provides the most reasonable answer and I believe that Christianity also provides the only meaningful message of hope in the midst of our evil and suffering. Well, what about a religion like Islam? Well, Islam faces some difficulties here. In Islam, Allah is all sovereign, in control of everything. Nothing happens outside of the will of Allah. He's in control of all things, 
Nothing happens that was not part of his will. And therefore, you end up with the conclusion that Allah, then, is the author of evil. All right? Everything happens according to the will of Allah. Then there is a real negation, ultimately, of free will. And Allah, then, becomes the author and the origin of evil. And there are several passages in the Quran, I believe uh, chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 8, and others, in which Allah actually commits acts of evil, or he deceives people, right? And in the Quran, Allah will deceive who he will. Allah will punish eternally who he will. He saves who he wills. Everything goes in accord with the divine sovereign will of Allah. Nothing happens outside of his will. And so you end up then with Allah being the author of evil. Then you have to ask yourself, you know, can I really trust Allah? How do I know I'm not being deceived by Allah for the day of wrath? How do I know? And then ultimately, because Islam is a works-oriented kind of religion, Really, there's no assurance that any of us will be victorious in the end because it's works-based. I mean, how do you know that you have done enough so that on the day of judgment, when your works are weighed on the scale, how do you know you have done enough so that you may enter into Islamic paradise? I mean, how do you know? No one really knows, even in the Quran and the Hadith. Muhammad, although the prophet of Allah stated he was not sure that what would happen to him upon that day. So really there is no assurance that you will be victorious over evil on that day. Because any works-based kind of religion, whether it is one of the world religions or under the cults, you really don't have full assurance of eternal salvation and victory over evil and eternal death. Well, in Mormonism, you have some problems as well, because in Mormonism, God is a creature. He is part of the created order of the universe. God in Mormonism is a created being. God and man are of the same substance. Right now, a lot of you may be shocked at what I just said, but go to evidenceandanswers.org and read my articles on Mormonism, uh, the Mormon doctrine of God specifically, or listen to the interviews I've had with former Mormon leaders and some of the top Mormon scholars out there, right? But God in Mormon theology was a man like you or I who lived on another planet and through his good life he attained exaltation unto Godhood. It is the uh, desire of every Mormon man to make that journey here on earth as God did and attain exaltation unto Godhood. So God and man really are of the same substance. Jesus uh, that's why Mormons call Jesus their elder brother, because God, Jesus, man, we're actually of the same substance, and we can make that same journey to Godhood as God the Father and Jesus did. Now, therefore, God is a created being. God is a creature then, and he is subject then to the forces of the universe. All right? He is not ultimately sovereign over the universe. God is a created being and there's many gods out there in the universe who have made this journey from human and exaltation unto godhood then and so god is a created creature subject to the forces of the universe and a created being then really cannot be sovereign over all the universe right mormonism runs into some problems there because you have a finite 
God here, not a God who is sovereign over the universe, who controls all things and can work all things in creation to bring about his purpose and his will. All right, I think this will be the final question we take on for the day. There's another really tough one here. By the way, if you got questions, send it. Email me during the week at pat at evidenceandanswers.org and we'll try to answer your question here at the question of the week. And the question is this, if the potential for evil is a necessary consequence of having a free will, then what about the time when Jesus comes back and all things are new? Christians hold that in the end they will be perfect and no longer sin, even though they still have free will. Why couldn't have God created a world like that in the first place? All right, this is going to be a really tough one here, okay? God did create a perfect world without sin, and yet we did sin through Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, even though we had a perfect world without sin. Now, it seems like we needed a world in which this could take place so that we could understand and experience the consequences of our disobedience and to exercise that choice, that free will, whether it was good or bad, we needed a kind of world in which we could exercise that and experience the consequences of our choice, even if it was uh, harmful to us. Without that, we're in an eternal relationship where the choice to you know, exercise our free will then was not possible. And in heaven, we are perfect. We do have free will, but we will not want to sin. Why? Because we're in a state of perfection. We have fullness of knowledge. We have seen and experienced how foolish or bad you know, sin was and the consequences of sin. And that's why that desire will no longer be there. All right? For example, okay, those of us who are ex-cigarette smokers, we've overcome the temptation of smoking. All right? Now, am I physically capable of picking up a cigarette and smoking? Absolutely. All right? I am free to do that. Now, do I want to do that? Absolutely not. There's no desire or temptation in me to do that now. Why is that? Well, because I've experienced and I have seen the consequences of cigarette smoking, not only just in my personal life, but uh, in the lives of many of my friends. I've seen how they've suffered tremendously from addiction to cigarette smoking. And you know, even though I could pick up a match and light it up right now, I have absolutely no desire to because I understand the consequences of this action of cigarette smoking. Now, without that experience, I would never know what a bad and horrible choice that is. And now being, you know, an older adult, I can see the foolishness of that decision that I made. I may have thought I looked cool as a teenager. Of course I didn't, but I may have thought I looked cool and I was doing something, you know, cutting edge, dangerous, ooh, exciting. But really it wasn't. It was just foolish. Why what was I ever thinking? You know, now that I'm much older and I'm looking back saying, that was the dumbest thing. What was I thinking? Well, in your heavenly state, you know, full knowledge, you'll be coming from a whole different perspective, understanding life from a whole new perspective, having experienced it, having understood it. So though you have free will, you just won't have the desire to sin because you understand it and you've been through it and you've seen its consequences. And so it seems without the experience of having gone through it in this world, we would not know this. And it seems that 
God created this, what we would call antecedent world, to prepare us then for all eternity. And what we learn and all that we experience here prepares us for eternity with Him. And it seems like it would not have been possible had we not gone through that experience here upon this earth. Well, I think that's all the time that we've got. We've got several other really tough questions here, and so we'll continue addressing this issue of God and the problem of evil in our next session. So if you've got any questions, be sure to email me at pat at evidenceandanswers.org, and we'll answer your questions live here on Question of the Week. All right, so until then, we'll see you next week, and aloha. run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, once again, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran.